Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 4, <coughs> verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. First Timothy chapter 4, we're going to dismiss the children to Children's Church. Line up at the door. If you're second grade and under and you want to go, come on down here. Line up at the door. Appreciate y'all teaching this morning. It's going to have a good time. It's going to be real good. If it's not, we're going to give every one of you your money back right after service. Good group right there. Isn't that awesome? They're going to hear the word being taught. They're going to hear the gospel. and That's a wonderful thing. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I just want to reiterate what Hunter said about just being servants. We have opportunities this week to serve one another and that's what we do as a part of the body we serve one another look for opportunities to love each other and care for each other we pray for each other and and so thankful for all those that that brought food to um for amy bowers family we had a good time yesterday uh, thankful for you and she's and their family's really thankful as well so first timothy chapter four jimmy is a part of a he was a part of a ministry team at the university uh, where he attended, he spent his weekends and even spring break going, doing ministry, revival teams and things like that, backyard Bible clubs, and he seemed to really enjoy it. And his, his service was really appreciated by the other teammates. And he, um, at a point in time in his collegiate career, he began to wait tables at a restaurant to earn some extra money. And little by little, his enthusiasm for the Lord's work waned. And he eventually stopped attending church and, and even cut off his Christian community altogether after a bit. He's yet to return to the faith. And in fact, he's a different person than the one who did all those revival teams. And it makes you wonder how someone who appeared to love the Lord at one time be so obstinate toward him now. Do you have any Jimmies in your life? you know anybody like that? Yeah, I know quite a few. We all know folks like Jimmy who were once, it appeared that they embraced the Christian faith, now seems to not have or want to have anything to do with Jesus at all. Well, Paul begins this chapter, chapter 4, warning of um, Apostasy, those who, like Jimmy, embraced or looked like they embraced Christianity, embraced the gospel, only to give way and turn away later. And what he's doing, he's returning to something that he mentioned in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He told Timothy to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons 
not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And those false teachers, they had had an effect, and there were some who were possibly um, turning away from the faith, the church. And so what Paul has done after chapter 1, he's, he's paused and he's kind of talked about the organizational matters in the church. We talked about pastors, qualifications for pastors, qualifications for deacons, women's roles in the church. In chapter 3, he, he gave us instruction that the church is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church is built on the foundation of truth, but also it holds and supports it and, and proclaims the truth. Paul ends the chapter in chapter 3 by declaring the, this truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 16. But now he returns to this warning from chapter 1 against false teaching and points out that there are some opposing this truth. And that teaching is going to endanger the church. We see Paul warn Timothy about apostates who will abandon the gospel they once appeared to embrace by focusing their attention on self-denial they're going to deprive themselves of things that god had said were good they'll abandon the the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith and the work of jesus and embrace ascetic practices where they deny themselves certain foods they deny themselves marriage which god said are are good it's interesting, if you, if you systematically walk through the New Testament, Chris, if you were taking notes on different topics that were mentioned in the New Testament, what you would find is the, the topic of false teachers and false teaching is going to come up more often than most every other topic, including love, including heaven. It is really, really important. So, let's look at our text. The first point from verse 1, being some will apostatize from the faith as they listen to false teachers. Notice what it says. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. The Spirit explicitly says. And so the question is, where does this take place or when does this take place? Well, Paul addressed the elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and 29. He warned of coming doctrinal defection. There's going to be some false teachers among you. And these same leaders who were there in Ephesus when Paul gave this instruction are now facing this heresy head on. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And he's meeting with the, the leaders in Ephesus. Remember, he's, he's, he's traveling. He sent word for them to meet him at a certain place. They met up and he's pouring out his heart to these people. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, overseers, pastors, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, when he leaves them, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. These fierce wolves are going to be false teachers. So Paul has already spoken this. Luke inspired by the Holy Spirit, has written this down. But elsewhere, like Luke, Paul addresses this in other writings. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. These believers in Galatia, they were being tempted 
by false teachers to abandon the Christian faith and go back to Judaism, trying to keep the law. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. So he addresses this elsewhere. Peter also informs us, 2 Peter chapter 1, I mean chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. But we see this from Peter. The Spirit expressly saying, through the Apostle Peter, who's writing down the words of God, that false teachers will come. Jude as well, in verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our coming salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That contend for the faith. We're the church of the living God, right? Pillars and buttresses of truth, right? That contending for the faith, that's the same idea. That was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. That means they came from within the church, right? They came out of the church. They're, they're within who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' own words, Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So we see over and over again the Lord warning the church of false teachers it says in later times this will occur now this isn't referring to the future immediately preceding Christ's second coming later times are the here and now from the time of Christ's ascension until his second coming we're living in the later times Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. But in these last days, these later days, we are living in the later days, the time from between the time of Jesus' ascension to the time of his second coming. So we're living in that time. So we need to be watching out on the lookout for false teachers. Peter on the, uh, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 verse 14 through 17 but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk. They, had, they were speaking in tongues right? They're not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, see, shall dream dreams. Christ at that point had, had ascended into heaven, and he had sent his Holy Spirit during the later days. 
says, somewhat apart from the faith in later days. The Spirit expressly says, God has told us this will happen in later times, which we're living in, that some will depart from the faith. And that's what we call apostasy. If you looked up in the dictionary, you see it's the abandonment of something you once believed in. An apostate is a person who understands the faith intellectually, and for a time behaves externally according to the revelation of God, but they show themselves to lack faith by not persistently living for the Lord. Another definition is an apostate is someone who deliberately abandons truth once affirmed for untrue teaching. They got hoodwinked, deceived, and led astray. And Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says that those who depart from God demonstrate an unbelieving heart. Now, I want to clear up something maybe you're, you're thinking about apostasy. When it says some will depart from the faith, does that mean that some who were born again, who were sealed with the Holy Spirit and loving the Lord, given eternal life, will one day forsake that faith and lose their salvation? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is speaking about people that make a profession of faith and then eventually by their own renouncing of the faith fall away revealing they never really experienced forgiveness and salvation in the first place. That's confirmed in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Speaking about apostates or those who apostatize, they went out from us, but they were not of us. How do we know they were not of us? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they are that all are not of us. So these are people who, who weren't born again, but they appeared to be born again, who had abandoned Christian faith, rejecting biblical true doctrine to follow false doctrine. Notice, look at verse 2. So we have these false teachers influencing people to leave the faith. And look at the character of the false teachers in verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Notice it says that they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits in verse 1 and teaching of demons. So you have here, they're described devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons. They're deceptive and they're demonic. How would you like to have that on your resume or your evaluation, right? They're evil. They're insincere liars. They're hypocritical, meaning they don't believe even what they're teaching. They're just they're wanting a following. Think about God calling people to himself through truth, and what does the enemy do? What does Satan do? He tries to lure people away from the truth with lies. And the reason they can't continue, or they can continue, Lying, leading people astray, is because their consciences are seared. It means they've repeated falsehood so much they can't feel guilty for it. I talked with someone this, this week, and they were explaining, describing somebody. Said, yeah, they, they lie when they don't have to. And they lie so much they can't determine if they're telling the truth or not. Because it's just all lies, right? Yeah, their consciences are seared. Such people have no remorse. Their, 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 car, their, their consciences are cauterized, right? 
we see a description of these people in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. I, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's reminding them that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through, our, through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in in the last days. When's the last days? Yeah, we're living in them, right? Yeah, we're living in them. With scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So this is the character. They're scoffers, right? They're sinful. They're wicked. They're demonic. They're deceitful. They're insincere and they're hypocritical. Notice the content. Look at verse 3. The content of their false teaching. What were they actually teaching specifically in verse 3? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We've already seen previously in 1 Timothy that these false teachers, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand how the law was to be used. And we see that again here. Now, when someone falls away from the faith, this is what happens. They'll fall away in uh, one of two ways, morally speaking. They'll either become licentious, or they'll just feed the flesh, gratify the sinful natures by just being sinful, outwardly sinful. And that's, what, uh, that's the, the, the error that Peter and Jude addressed in the text we read before. Think about the person who says, well, you know, it don't really matter because, you know, God loves us and he's a forgiving God. And he wants us to enjoy life. So I can live this way and do this and do that. Disobey God's word. But, you know, God is loving and he wants me to be happy. It feels good and it doesn't hurt anybody else. How could it be bad? Right, But these false teachers he's addressing here in chapter 4, they're, they're, they're going the other direction. They're promoting a type of asceticism, self-denial. The other, the other side of the coin, they're, they're hedonist. Feed the flesh, do whatever you want to do. Whatever sensual, whatever you want to do, you do it. It doesn't really matter because God is love and God is loving. And in the end, it's all going to be good because we're all going to heaven. Because God's merciful. But these on the other side, they're, they're promoting this self-denial, this asceticism, this uh, forbidding them from eating certain foods. We don't eat pork. We don't eat meat. We don't, we don't intake caffeine, whatever. When we lived overseas, we had, um, it was interesting. The food was second to none. It was incredible food. We just loved it. And uh, you ate a little bit of meat, but most of it was just vegetables, and, but it was incredible food. Chris Mack would have hated it, but it was like the best thing ever. just vegetables all the time. Um, but it was like the same food all the time, and it all kind of had similar taste. But, but we loved that there's uh, some noodle, little noodle restaurants, and they were all Muslim. They were from like Xinjiang, from the western provinces. And they would come there, um, kind of like here, like, you know, every little town has a, has a Mexican restaurant. You know, that's the way it was there. Every, every city had these, these Muslim noodle shops. And what they would do is they would, um, they would serve beef, which you didn't get where we lived, and lamb, which you didn't get where we lived. And then they would have these wheat noodles, which you didn't get very often either. And so the, the taste was just so different. You know, it was just something, a, a change. And so we would love to eat there. 
And, and there's times where we would sit down and have conversation with these um, Muslims about their faith, you know, just to, trying to be a learner and trying to open up conversation. But it's interesting when what I, would, what I found out about their faith is, is that they didn't eat pork. And when I asked more questions about their faith and what they believe and what their God required of them, they didn't eat pork. And the more I dug and the more questions I asked about their faith, the more I realized that they don't eat pork. That was what they knew about their faith, is they did not eat pork. And if they did do that, then their God would be pleased with them in some way, form, or fashion. But some, some folks actually do that. Folks who've been affiliated with the church have seemed to appear to embrace you know, Christianity. They'll walk away focused on something like that, some self-denial, something they're depriving themselves of. Now, food laws... We see those in the Old Covenant. You may be asking, well, what about food laws? You know, in the Old Testament, they couldn't eat certain foods. Were they given for a brief time in Israel's history to that nation to develop their moral faculty of discernment, right, and to make them set apart from Gentile pagan nations? But once Christ came and fulfilled the sacrificial laws and made Jew and Gentile to be one in, in Christ, those dietary laws were set aside so they were useful and they were they were for a time the lord set those up but for now under the new covenant to reimpose them is to to manufacture a works-based merit-based righteous system if i did this if i do this if i if i if i sacrifice and i don't give in to that and i with withstand the temptation to, to eat this and participate in that, then that's going to give me right standing with God. So some in here in Ephesus, they're being duped by these lures of asceticism, right? forbidding themselves what God has allowed. And so what happens is this self-deprivation becomes the, the end all of their religion. And what does it do? It feeds your pride. If I deny myself, what does it do? It promotes pride. And, and, and yeah, I've, I've sacrificed and I'm giving up for, for the Lord. And so what does it do? It builds yourself up and it takes emphasis off of Christ. Well, Genesis chapter 1 tells us when God created all things that he made them good. You had the food laws, right? But you fast forward to the new covenant. God declared all things good, created man, and they were very good. Fast forward to Acts chapter 10. Peter is having a vision. This is real important. One of the key stories in the New Testament, key incidents in the New Testament that's going to help us understand that, that there is one body of Christ made up of many people, both Jew and Gentile. But Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision. And there's a sheet. You, feel, you remember that story? There's a sheet, right, that comes down from heaven. It's filled with all kind of unclean animals. And the Lord tells him to eat. He's declaring all foods clean. And what he's doing, he's trying to communicate to Peter that yeah, 
Israel is the chosen people of God, but God wants to redeem all peoples. He wants all peoples and all nations and all tongues and all tribes represented in glory. He wants to redeem all types of people. And so what he's doing, he's declaring that all this, all food is kosher. There's no restrictions on the new covenant. Acts chapter 10, verse 15. And the voice came to him a second time, came to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. And Jesus does the same thing in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And so what is Jesus doing is declaring all foods clean as well. So what has happened is that there's a contrived holiness introduced by these false teachers. And they're being instigated and driven by the enemy, by the devil, right? In fact, God is never really properly worshipped by denial of the things he's approved of. Like, oh, this makes the Lord happy if I deny myself this. Well, not if God has called those things good. Marriage is also denied by these false teachers. And you think about marriage, well, you know, it's, it's kind of, Paul says, you know, if you're not married, your interests aren't divided. You have more time to do ministry. You have more finances, more funding, more energy. You're not thinking about, well, is, what's my husband think? Or what's my wife think? Or whatever. And, and that's true. But marriage is a good thing, right? Amen. Marriage is a good thing, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's promoted and encouraged, right? Those who forbid marriage two people from being married and are forbidding a good thing when you forbid or you begin to forbid what god allows soon you'll begin to allow what god forbids there's there's two sides of that coin let me read this Lincoln duncan says false teaching will either lead one in one of two directions every time it'll either be narrower than the word of God, and it will not allow things that the word of God allows. That's what's happened here. Restricting. Rigid. We can't do that. We've got to stay away from that. If I do this, it's please the Lord. If I do this, I'll be righteous. I'll be godly. It feeds the pride, right? Or the other side of the coin is that it'll be broader than the word of God and allow things that the word of God does not allow. He writes, because when you begin to forbid things that God allows, soon you allow things that God's word forbids. Another one of my favorite uh, pastors, Stephen Cole, he writes, legalism and licentiousness are two sides of the same coin. Both are devoid of a personal relationship with the living God in which all areas of life are brought under his lordship as a response to his grace. Neither legalism nor licentiousness focus on inner righteousness. The legalism Paul is attacking is as demonic in origin as licentiousness. In the end, in the, it is the end result of wrong thinking which stems from deceitful spirits. It leads to pride, not to godliness. It focuses on self and not the Lord. And that's the attraction of legalism, asceticism, self-deprivation, is it promotes self. It makes us feel good. It makes us look good. 
focus is taken off of God and Christ's work that he did to attain righteousness for us. Anytime a church or an individual teaches that we merit heaven by our good works, they're nullifying Christ's finished work, and that's an anti-gospel message. These false teachers, they are denying that what God has created is good. So lastly, in contrast to the apostles, be thankful, be prayerful, and faithful to the word of God. God's people need to be watching out for teachers who deny the goodness of God, who distort the, the word of God. We need to be thankful for the goodness of God and enjoy all the things he's given us. All the food is given to us and is good. Marriage is instituted by God and it's good, so we should be thankful for those things. Not deny those things, but be thankful and embrace them. Everything God has made and instituted is good. Notice I didn't say that everything is good. You can't say everything is good. No, everything that God has made and instituted is good. And everything God has made and declared to be good is good. That's why we need to be people of the Word. We talked about that with students this morning, small group. We need to be people of the Word. We need to know what God's word says, what pleases the Lord, and what doesn't please the Lord. And the New Testament has made clear that all foods were now clean to Christians. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute. I got celiac disease. I can't eat that. Or I got high cholesterol. I can't eat that. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't get into all that. I'm diabetic. I can't have it. I had to drink unsweet tea, dead gummit, instead of sweet tea. I'm not sure what I'm saying. Go drink sweet tea if you're diabetic. It's all good. That's not what I'm saying. But don't deny yourself and set aside something. Well, I'm going to deny myself and not do this thing. I'm not going to eat this food, and that's going to make me in a better standing with God. That's not true. That's not true. You're promoting yourself, taking the focus off of Christ and what he's done for us. So, the million-dollar question today is, look at verse 5. What does it mean here when it says, it, For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Well, the word of God most likely is referring to God's word in creation when he declared all things good. He created all things, and after every day, he said, and it was good. And then on the sixth day, when he created man, it was very good. Good. God's declaring these things are, are good and very good. In the New Testament, God declares food clean in the New Testament. All of it, right? There's no kosher food and unkosher food. It's all good. What about prayer? Well, this word prayer, it's interesting. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Both times it's in Timothy chapter one, I mean chapter two, verse one, and, and here in chapter four, verse five. We think about prayer, think about, well, you automatically go to prayer for food because talking about food laws and talking about food and being thankful and should we be thankful when we eat? Yeah, I think so. I'm not. I'm not. I don't think this is specifically exactly what that's talking about, but we. I think that's a good habit we should do, and that's why I think it's good for us to sit around the table and eat. And I know some of you got you got um, TV trays 
and you have food and you just kind of randomly come and because kids are coming in and out and you randomly eat food and food trays and y'all just kind of eat when you want to. And that's fine. I just love that idea of, for us, we sit at the table because it's, it's cooked and we all sit down together. That's the time. There's a lot can happen at the table. Some of you do devotions. I think Bo and, and Bo does, he leads his family devotionals at the table because that's the one time they're going to be together. Um, but it's also great just to grab hands and give thanks for the food. And if your kid's here, you say thank you for giving us this food. What does it do? It's teaching our children that the good things we have come from God. And I know many of you do that. James, he does that with his family. He, they have prayer time at the table, and I think that's good. Now, don't make that a, a thing. Well, we got to do that because that will make us right with God. That's not what I'm saying, but I think it's helpful. And I think we should give thanks. Um, Mark chapter 6, verse 40. One, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And then, yeah, he fed the 5,000. I don't think this is like a one-time deal where he gives thanks and passes out the food. No, this, that's what he, that's tradition. That's what they did. It was a, a common habit, common thing they did when they ate. And Jesus, at the Last Supper, we're going to read that text in just a minute out of Luke. But what did Jesus do? He gave thanks, and he passed the bread. He gave thanks, and he passed the cup. He gave thanks. That's what they did. What are they doing? They're acknowledging, hey, this comes from God, and this is good, and we're thankful for it. And I really struggle with this text. And it, several, I've talked to several of you in our congregation. And said, yeah, just kind of head scratch. are really tough. That's why in the bulletin it's blank. The fourth, the fourth uh, point is blank because I just really struggled. Uh, Michael, we left here Thursday. I said, put a blank in there. She's like, what? It's kind of odd. Like, yeah, I put a blank in there. I'm just having a hard time with this text. And even this morning, Sarah came in and put in what I gave her. And I said, change that. Here, we're going to do something different. Uh, but I, I think uh, this is helpful. I'm going to read this for you. I think this probably hits the nail on the head. Um, John Stott, which, whom I love, he's a great uh, expositor and commentator. He um, was an Anglican pastor, writer, theologian, but he, he writes this. I'm going to read it for you. I think that food becomes consecrated, made holy, right? In, in ESV it says made holy. What does it mean this, these things are made holy by the Word of God in prayer? I think that food becomes consecrated to us subjectively when we recognize their divine origin and receive them from God with gratitude. We recognize, yeah, this, these things that we have, marriage, food, yeah, thank you, Lord. You've given them to us for our enjoyment, to benefit us. Thank you. If God made something, calling it into being by his word, goes back to Genesis chapter 1, and by the same word declared it to be good, and if as a result of our knowledge of these things, we can thank God for it with a good conscience, then we have a double cause to receive it, enjoy it, and thankfully celebrate it. God's creative word and our grateful prayer have together sanctified it to our use. So what are we doing? We're acknowledging these things. God has said these things are good. We're acknowledging these things are good, and we're thankful for them. What happens? Yeah, it's made holy. Our marriage is thankful for it. Marriage is a good thing. I'm thankful I'm married. Thankful for my spouse. Thankful for my husband. Thankful for my wife. Thankful for this food. We're recognizing God has given it to us. 
And by us being thankful, expressing that word of thanks, this thing is made holy that we can use it and it's for our benefit and for our good. Along the same line, R.C. Sproul, he says, when we recall the goodness of God's creation while we thankfully and prayerfully receive his gifts, I think marriage and food both apply, we can be assured that even common things are made holy or set apart as fit for use in his kingdom. So what is, what is the application here? Um, I think firstly is enjoy what God has given us and declared good and be thankful for those things. So I think it's just an application. You ought to be thankful. We ought to be thankful. There, and and we, we do this. And sometimes we sit down with somebody and I f- feel like we're going to give thanks, you know, together. And then somebody just dropped their head. You know, and it's like they have their quiet time. Like, oh, that joke is really praying. Then I start feeling bad. Like, man, I need to pray like this. You know, they're praying, 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 praying. Finally, they're like, like, oh, man, I thought we were going to give thanks together. Um, but that's a good habit with our families to give thanks. Husband and wife, kids, hold hands, grab a hand, give thanks, tell the Lord thank you. Let the kids take turns, you know. Teach them how to pray and tell the Lord thank you. And I always say every time I'm praying, thank you, I'm thankful. I've seen people that are hungry. I'm thankful. God, you've given us food. There's hungry people all over the world, and we are wealthy and blessed, and every bit of it comes from you. Thank you. We have all of this, and it's good, and we're thankful for it. Yeah, it's good. So just application. If you're not doing that as a family, if you're not doing your kids, you ought to start doing that. Even your wee little ones. Teach them. Tell God, thank you. We got something to eat. There's kids that don't have anything to eat. Let's be thankful. Yeah. Number two, I think uh, Hebrews 3.12 is a, is a good application point. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Application point number two. Take care. Watch out. Be on the lookout. Be warned. Be careful. Do any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God? Be careful of both sides of that. One side is licentiousness. Well, I, it, God loves it, and it don't really matter. In the end, God's going to forgive. He wants me to be happy. That's one side. The other side is the, I'm going to give this up, and it's going it's to please God, and God's going to be happy with me if I do this. Both are wrong, and both dangerous. Let's be careful we, we, that we don't allow things that the Word of God allows. Don't be too narrow, but also don't be too broad. Don't allow things that the Word of God forbids. Think about this. We think about asceticism. and I ask this question a lot. It's the evangelism explosion question I love. If you stood before the Lord and he asked you, why should, you let, why should he let you into heaven, what would you say? Think about that for a second. If you stood before the Lord and he asked you, why should I let you, whatever your name is, into heaven, what would you say? 
Now, if, if your thought, you just had a thought, everybody in here except three people, they're just sleeping. It's okay. Carry on. Carry on. Labor Day tomorrow. You get day off and you rest up. Next week, you'll stay awake. Three people sleeping. Don't worry about y'all. The rest of you, you had a thought. When I asked that question, if you stood before the Lord and he said, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say? It, it came. And if it was the thought that came to your mind was something like this. I don't do this. I stayed away from that. I'm not like so-and-so. If any of those thoughts came to your mind, you're the person that Paul is warning against. I, 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 I. We promoting you and your work, your merit, your. The correct answer would be something like this. God, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. That something like that is the correct answer. Jesus, Jesus did this. Jesus did this. Not I, not I, Jesus. What are you depending on to be in glory? You or Jesus? Correct answer is Jesus and what he's done for us. I'm trusting that Jesus lived for me. He died for me. He rose on the third day so that I could be justified. God, you should let me in heaven because of what Christ has done for me. It has nothing to do with me whatsoever. And, and if, if that's you or you, you're coming up with I comments, I answers, by way of application, I want to I want to encourage you, compel you, repent today. Because you're dependent on you. And you're not good enough. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good a daddy, a mama, a sister, a brother, a worker, a co-worker, an aunt. Repent. And trust Jesus. Your, your prayer might be, God, I've been depending on me and I've been thinking about how good I am. But I recognize now that I'm not good, that I'm sinful and I deserve your wrath. But Jesus did die. He lived, he died, and he rose so that I could be forgiven. And I need to be forgiven because I've been dependent on me, thinking about I'm a good person and I'm this and I'm that. But God, my attention and focus from this point on is going to be on Jesus because Jesus is good. Jesus is good. Jesus is good. That leads us right into the Lord's Supper where we're going to focus on Jesus and his goodness and his sacrifice for us, the church. Now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and so the question is, should I take the Lord's Supper? And I would say, if you're a believer, you've repented and trusted Christ, you take the Lord's Supper. This is a family affair, and it's for you if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, if you've not repented and trusted Christ, work on the cross as your own, then I would say, don't take the Lord's Supper right now. If you have questions, you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk to you about that, okay? But this is a family meal. It's for believers. We kind of put a fence around that. We don't put it too high, I don't think. 
think Scripture wants us to put a fence around that. So this is for believers. I'm going to read out of Luke, his gospel. Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. In Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Does anybody need a, any elements? I think we pass those around. Anybody need one before we get started? Okay. And this isn't a, a, a mystical thing. This is just a, a time of an ordinance that God gives us in his wisdom to make us slow down and focus and think about Jesus. We've already sat before the Lord and we've confessed sin, examined ourselves. That's a good thing. And again, if you've got questions, you're like, I don't know if I should take the Lord's Supper or not. I'd love to talk to you about that and help you if I can. But if you're a believer, you ought to take the Lord's Supper. You say, well, I hadn't been living right or blah, blah, blah. Um, I, had a, I had a guy, was, he and I had some conflict, and so we took the Lord's Supper. And then somebody said, hey, I thought you and so-and-so were mad at each other. Whatever. I said, no, not mad at each other. Y'all had some conflict. Said, yeah, we had some conflict. Well, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. I was like, well. No, I take the Lord's Supper to remember what Christ has done. And if I've treated him wrongly, I should commit to go and make that right, and, and I take the Lord's Supper. You don't take the Lord's Supper if you got it all together. No, we take the Lord's Supper, remember Christ, and be thankful for what he's done. And that's going to motivate us to, to live rightly, isn't it? Yeah. You're going to take the top off this. There's a little wafer there. It's bread. That's our, our bread. You're like, I don't really like this stuff. Well, make us a loaf. Next time, and we'll split it up and partake of it. Love to do that. Let me read this text. And what we're going to do, if you're new and if you've forgotten or whatever, we're going we're to read the scripture when it talks about the bread, and we're going to talk about that for a second, and we're going to give thanks for the, the bread because it, it's symbolic. It, it's a reminder of Jesus' body. And we're going to eat this and remember his body broken for us and be thankful for it. And then we're going to, take the next little layer off and we're going to drink this juice and that juice is a, a, a reminder of Christ's blood. We, we sing about that, right? The blood, the precious blood of Jesus and how it, um, because of his blood shed, we can be forgiven and we're going to be thankful for that, okay? Let me read this out of Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood okay so you got this bread and we're going to eat it together as a body remembering his body broken for us and let's give thanks for his body father we do acknowledge that you are um, you are good because you gave us your son we know you love us because of your gift in your son and Jesus loves us because he left the throne room of heaven and he walked the earth and he took on flesh. He lived among sinners 
in a righteous way. And he went to the cross and was broken, body broken for us. And we recognize that and give thanks for his body. As you've commanded us here in Luke 22, we are thankful for him. What a wonderful, precious gift we have in Jesus. And this is, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's take the bread and remember his body broken for us. And Jesus, he took that cup, right, and he gave thanks. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? That's something. What would we be? Where would we be without the blood of Jesus? Father, we are thankful that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Think about all the things we have done and all the things we haven't done that grieve you. And there's many more to come. So we're thankful that Jesus' blood washes us clean. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're thankful for it. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's drink this. Remember Jesus' blood shed for us. All right, so worship team, come on up. We'll sing us out of here today. A benediction song. Mention that. Let's just sing that, what y'all prepared. Thanks and praise, okay? Wednesday night, we're going to have Bible study. Man, it's a sweet time. Y'all to come uh, if you can. I know some of you have to work and things like that. And, and I press that, and I encourage you a little bit. Some of you get a little aggravated with me, but it's such a sweet time. And it's always, if you come, if you can just get here, right, Elaine? If you just get here, it's going to be sweet. You're going to be glad you came. You're going to be better for it. You're going to learn, and you're going to be encouraged. I know some of you have to work, and you can't. But if you can, you ought to come. It's a sweet time together. Be in prayer for those folks who are traveling. Be prayerful today and tomorrow, and hope you have a sweet day tomorrow, Labor Day. Tuesday, we have prayer and share as well, so that's going to be a good time. So stand with